Good morning, everybody. Before we get into our time in the Bible today, I do want to give a special shout out uh, to somebody, and I, I'll do that in just a second to a group of people. Uh, but you are going to hear at the end of the service today uh, some of the things that God has been doing, not just in this church, but in our community, that I think you will be incredibly encouraged by. Folks, God is on the move and doing miraculous things in our city. It, it, greater things are yet to come. It's good. Now, I also want to give a shout out to Miramichi because here's why. I found out this weekend that there is a church in Miramichi that is between pastors and so they've decided, and they've been doing it for the last month or so, that every Sunday they come together in their church and they are live streaming with us and they're with us this morning. Would you give a shout out to Miramichi? <laughs> so we're here with you in Moncton. We, we appreciate it, everybody being here today. We're ready to study our Bibles. We're in Matthew chapter 12 today. Matthew chapter 12. There was a grade six teacher in California who gave a writing students to her grade six students. And the, the, the assignment was that they were to complete the statement, I wish. What do you wish for? And you would expect that the parent, you know, that the students would wish for things like, you know, I wish for world peace. I, I, I wish for uh, for a new bicycle, I wish I had a new iPad. I wish I could go to Disney World. But she was so sad to read their responses that 20 out of the 30 students in her class, 20 out of 30, 66%, said their number one wish is that things could be better in their family. I, I want to read to you just a few of the responses. One child said, I wish my parents wouldn't fight, and I wish my father would come back. Another one said, I wish my mother didn't have this boyfriend that she has. Another said, I wish I could get straight A's so that my father would love me. I wish I had one mom and one dad, and I have three moms and three dads, and they're messing up my life. Mother Teresa is one of the most respected women, probably one of the most respected humans in the last 100 years in our world. Uh, in, she died in 1997, but she won the, the Nobel Peace Prize and, and widely was considered to be one of the, the experts on serving the poor and making this world a better place. And when she won the Nobel Peace Prize, they asked her this question. They said, what can the rest of us do? What can we do to promote world peace? And you would think that she would say something like, you know, an address to all of the political leaders around the world and what they should do in, in the halls of government. You would think that maybe she would have something to say about what churches and, and, and charities should be doing, something to say about what schools and, and what institutions should do to fix the problems in our world today. 
But instead, she said something very, very simple. I want to show it to you. She said, if you want to promote world peace, go home and love your family. Go home and love your family. She said, it's, it's really simple. That is the place that it starts. And so we're in Matthew chapter 12. Let's read this out loud together in unison. We have it on the screen. Matthew 12, verse 25, everyone reading out loud. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. And so Jesus said, every kingdom and every city and every household will be crumbling, will not stand if it is divided against itself. And folks, I wonder if this might have something to do with the crumbling foundations in our society the divorce rates, the, the, the fighting and dissension in Canadian families. Jesus said, everything starts to crumble. Tout commence à s'effriter. Everything starts to crumble. Our kids, our jobs, our, our societies, our schools, our morality, our mental health and stability, our relational systems. Jesus says that everything begins to crumble when we are, are divided against ourselves. In the United States, two college professors did a research study. One was from the University of Tennessee, and one was from the great state of Alabama where we lived 10 years before we moved to Moncton and uh, roll tide. Most Canadians have no idea what that means, right? Uh, but, uh, and so the University of Tennessee, the University of Alabama, and they did this research study where they, they took out an advertisement in 50 different cities uh, or 20, uh, across 25 different states, 50 different cities in the United States and in uh, 25 different states to get a broad cross-section. And here's what they wrote in the newspaper. They said in this advertisement, we know a lot about what makes families fail. There's been a lot of research on that. They said, but we want to learn more about what makes families succeed. And so if you are from a strong family, we want to hear from you. And so in this research study, uh, they got back 3,000 responses that they included. And in those responses, they, they began to distill them and found that really there were six answers, six specific things that rose to the surface above everything else. Now, what's really interesting is the six things that we're going to look at today. Do you remember two weeks ago when we talked about marriage? And, and we looked at six things that the Bible talks about that are, are important for a, a healthy marriage. Well, guess what? In this research study, they basically found the same six things, which kind of makes me think maybe the Bible knows what it's talking about. The first thing that they identified, number one, was commitment. The researchers found that the strongest families had a sense of commitment, that, that, that no matter what hard times they go through, we have decided we're going to stick together. Even when we disagree, even when we have hard times. Uh, there's an old story about a 
a, a young man who was off at college. So he's a college student, he's lonely, and so his girlfriend sends him a picture of herself. And this is old school, okay? I want to explain to, uh, to teenagers what it means to, f- to send a photograph to someone in something called the mail. Uh, that, that what would happen is uh, that uh, you had something called a camera that had nothing to do with a phone. A phone hung on the wall, and a camera was like this. And so in order to take a picture, there was no such thing as a selfie. Someone else actually had to take the picture for you. It was like a communal experience to take a picture of yourself. And so, so, so then when the picture was taken, you take the film out of the camera, and then you go to something. This was even before you had these where you could print them out at drugstores. You had to go to something called a camera store. There were actually stores that all they sold were cameras, and there was not a phone in sight. It's a crazy, crazy, amazing thing. So you would get in your car, fill it up with gas, and drive to the camera store, drop off a roll of film. You really had to want a picture bad. And so you would, you would leave it there sometimes for as long as a week, and then you would have to actually get in your car, drive back to the camera store to pick up the film that was developed, and then you, 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 they were like a magazine, right? Like you actually held them in your hands, and, uh, and so what, what boyfriend, it was a, those were the dark ages, just so you know. And I'm not looking to go back, thank the Lord. And so, so, so what would happen is a boyfriend and a girlfriend is they would give pictures to one another and they would write a note on the back. Do you remember this? Some of you, you were dating yourselves. And, and uh, if you've ever written on the back of a picture, that shows how old you are. And so, and so we would write on the back of the picture a note that, that tells how we feel so that they would always have that picture where? In their wallet. And so I would always, you know, you'd carry the picture in your wallet. I had a picture of Tracy and, and it was a beautiful thing. So here, I, I know that's a lot of background for a joke, but I thought it would be an educational historical experience for us here today. And on the back of this picture, she had written, My dearest Tom, I love you with all my heart. I love you more and more each day. I am yours until the end of time, and my devotion to you is forever and ever. Signed, your true love for all eternity. And then it said, P.S., I want this picture back if we break up. You see, in order for a family to stick together, it takes some glue. And so under commitment, let's talk really quickly about four different types types of glue that we need to stick together. Spiritual bonding. This is about praying together, reading the Bible together, going to church together, talking about our faith. Number two is emotional bonding. It means having a a safe place to be able to, to share our feelings even when we disagree with each other because we live in a world when we go out there that we get beat up and criticized every single day. And home needs to be a safe place where we can be honest with each other. Uh, physical bonding, uh, like, like actually to hug your child, or in this case, uh, here's a great picture from last week where I'm hugging my father and I'm not sure that he's into it. <laughs> Uh, it, I don't know why, I took him to his absolute favorite restaurant, Costco. And uh, all he wanted was a $1.50 hot dog and a drink. And uh, so he's a cheap date. 
Number, number four is mental bonding. Mental bonding. Uh, like learning together. Talking about issues together. Talking about, uh, about history together. Going to museums together. We, one of the things that, uh, that our family uh, would often do and still does is we will download educational podcasts when we're riding in the car and then learn together and laugh together. Now, here's the second thing the researchers found in strong families. Number two is time together. Uh, 1,500 children were asked what makes a happy family, and 90% of the responses were simply this. A happy family is a family that spends time together. Not that goes on fancy vacations and has a nice house and a nice car and does all kinds of exotic stuff. Just time together. And Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. And here's what I think that means. That I've found that, that if you really want to get down deep into the secrets of a person's heart, it takes time. It doesn't just happen like this. Many times with our kids, we sit down for a serious conversation and say, okay, now it's time to get real. Tell me what's going on in your life. Tell me what the problems are. We've got 10 minutes to get it done. And so our kids get home at the end of the day and we're like, what happened at school today? And what's the answer? You, you have, your kids said that too. What happened at school today? Nothing. <laughs> And, and, and so, so nothing, absolutely nothing at all happened at school. Not a single thing the entire day. Nope, not a thing. And then we walk away and say, my, kid, my child just won't communicate. But listen, what happens is we begin to, to, to get down to issues and talk happens more naturally when we're doing stuff together as a byproduct. One of the questions that's often asked is, which is more important Quality time, let's put this on the screen. What is, what is more important, quality time or quantity time? You're, you're smarter than I am because I had to look it up. I, I went and did research and tried to figure out, what is it? Which is more important? Is it more important if you have to choose one or the other to have quality time, whatever that is, and, or quantity time? And the answer is, of course, as many of you said, both. Because here's what I, here's what I think happens is we cannot experience quality time without first having spent quantity time together. Like magic moments cannot be manufactured. They come as a byproduct of doing things together, spending time together, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're driving along in the car and you've spent you know, a whole weekend together doing stuff and just not even probing into the issues, and then all of a sudden, sometimes, after spending mass amounts of time together, when you least expect it, real stuff comes spilling out. Have you found this to be true? Ann Miller talks about those magic moments that happen, how quality time is a byproduct of spending quantity time together. Uh, she wrote a book called They Eat Dirt, Don't They? <laughs> and she talked about her nine-year-old son, who, like most nine-year-old boys, does not like to take a bath, did not like to wash his hair. And so on Sunday morning, they're getting ready for church, and she's, she's kind of fixing his wet 
hair, freshly cleaned. And, 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 and she's, she mentioned, man, your hair is growing so quickly. It's time for a haircut. And he said, mom, no wonder my hair grows so fast. You make me water it all the time. And so I figured, guys, maybe we should try that. Maybe that's the, the secret. Number three, appreciation. There's this powerful verse in Proverbs 22, verse 6 in the King James that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And here's what I think sometimes happens, is sometimes we look at this verse, and the way that we read it is, train up in the ch a child in the way that I wish they would go. I, I am going to raise a hockey star. That's, that's my dream. And so we get the coach and we do all this stuff. I, I want my child to be part of the family business. They're going to grow up and, and take over all the, and just be just like me. Train up a child in the way that I wish they would go. No, 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 no. Train them in the way that God has designed them to go. I, I, let me share one of my frustrations, is that I am uh, a, a, a car guy, like I love cars, I've had sports cars, I've done racing, I've, uh, I've been part of a, a Porsche racing program, I've uh, done, raced must, uh, my Mustang over the years, uh, I have a 4x4 right now, I have, uh, I've had motorcycles over the years, motorcycles have always been a big part of my life. And so one of my dreams was when I have kids, our second child was a boy, and I'm like, yeah, I got a boy. Ah. And I just, I could dream of, I would see parents, you know, father and son going on motorcycles to trips together. And so I'd be like, you know, I can just see us like a, like a Western, you know, two men driving off together, riding off into the sunset, saddlebags and, you know. And, uh, and so as my son grew up, uh, it soon became apparent that he was more interested in Mozart and movies than motorcycles. <laughs> and so guess what? I let that dream go. And I got over it. And I'm amazed and proud of the son, the man that he has become. Even though in so many ways he's not like me. <laughs> but here, here's the deal. When it comes to train up a child, not in the way that I wish they would go, but the way that God has, has wired them, I am more concerned that he follow in the footsteps of Jesus than that he follow in the footsteps of his father. Come on, come on out. Let me, let, me, let me give this to some of you. Are you more concerned that your child follow in your footsteps or that they follow in the footsteps of Jesus? Bill, Bill Glass surveyed some men in prison when it comes to how our words can shape the future and what we say about our kids. Bill Glass uh, did a survey of prison inmates and found that 90% of prison inmates, when asked about their childhood, could remember their parents complaining about them as kids complaining about their kids. 
90% of prison inmates, that's a memory from their childhood. Can, can I say it again? 90%. Folks, our words can have the power to shape the future. Be very careful, not just what you say to your kids, but what you say about your kids. Oh man, I can't wait for summer break to get over. Send my kids back to school, get them out of here. I can't wait to have a quiet house again. How does that feel to a young person to hear my parents talk about how they can't wait to get rid of me? Oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed to take my kids out in public. My, my, my child's just not very smart. Those words are powerful enough to shape their future. You see, what we have to be careful of, your words have more impact than you know. And if all you do is complain about your child, they will begin to live down to the level of your expectation. They will become the very thing that you say they are. But positive words also have power. Positive words of blessing. See, speak positive words of blessing over your children and they will often begin to live up to what you say about them. You see, Proverbs 16, 24 says, gracious words are a honeycomb sweet to the soul, and they bring healing to the bones. Do you know what that word gracious says to me? To be gracious means that sometimes you don't always point out the negative, you look for ways to point out the positive. That's gracious. It's like, you know what, I see all the problems, but I'm not gonna always focus on the problems, I'm also going to focus on the positive and speak words of blessing to bring healing to the relationship. Uh, when our daughter turned 13 years old, an amazing thing happened that uh, all of a sudden our sweet 13-year-old girl turned into an angry sour grape. <laughs> and all of a sudden our little 13, by the way, all these, I always ask for permission when I, and so I ask for permission uh, for a story like this, but uh, into a, um, she turned into Mrs. Attitude and she would complain and argue about everything, especially with her mother. Our house became like the clash of the titans. Uh, some of you have been there. And so all the time we would call her on it. And we would say, young lady, you need to straighten up. You've got a bad attitude. You've got an attitude problem. You need to straighten out your attitude. And this amazing thing happened. The more we talked about her attitude, the worse it became. And so we decided together, all of a sudden, we realized that she was living down to the level of our expectation. And so we made a radical decision and we began to look for the positive. It, 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 to, tr to not focus on the attitude, but to look for anything positive that we could focus on to, to encourage and to, to speak of how we, we loved her and how we appreciated who God made her to be and what a beautiful woman she was, young lady she was becoming. And, and this amazing thing begins to happen so often when you begin to speak 
about it as if it were already true that the less we focused on the bad and the more that we focused on the good, the more she began to live up to our positive expectations because gracious words they are powerful. They are a honeycomb. They're sweet to the soul and they can even bring healing, healing to broken bones. And that's the fourth thing on the list, communication. Strong families learn to communicate. Remember the verse, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters. And it takes some communication help sometimes to draw that out. And so we talked two weeks ago about the value of counseling for some families. The fifth thing in their study they found are coping skills. That, that sometimes we have a, a misunderstanding that we think that families that, that stick together are families that don't have any problems and families that fall apart are families that have problems. But the truth is that every family has problems. Now in different times and in different ways, yes, but you got problems, I got problems, all God's chillin's got problems. The difference, every family responds to problems differently. How you respond is differently than how their family responds. But our response to problems is what makes the difference. And if we learn how to cope together, problems can actually have the potential to make us stronger. Romans 5 verse 3 to 5 says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Romans says problems don't have to break you. That when you take it to the Holy Spirit, when you live in the Holy Spirit, when you grow in the truth of God's word, when you allow his spirit to work in the midst of, of bringing healing into your problems, that you can actually become better and stronger and wiser for having gone through them together. Number six, number six, the final thing on their list was spiritual health. Spiritual health. Now, I want you to pay attention to this for just a minute. Remember, this was a secular survey. This has nothing to do with the church. This is two college professors with responses from newspaper listings all across the country, and they came to the conclusion that one of the six factors that, that are components of a strong family is spiritual health. Here, here's some research cited by John Maxwell. It's been found that if the mother and father are both actively involved in church, 72% of their children will be faithful in church as adults. If only the father is regularly a part of the church, 55% of the children will stay in church. But if only the mother attends regularly, only 15% of the kids are in church as adults. Both parents, Growing in Christ together, 75%, 72%. Just the father, 55%. Just the mother, 15%. 40% difference. 40% difference if the father is not leading spiritually. Everybody else in the room, just, just kind of take a break. You can look at your watch for a second. Let me talk to the men. Men, if you have children, 
You need to understand that God has entrusted you with the greatest responsibility of your life to be the spiritual leader for your family. And you can't expect your wife to do it or the church to do it for you or anybody else to do it for you. You say, I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. I can't do that. Duh. You're right. You're not. Neither am I. That's why we do this together. That's why we need the strength and the truth of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit and the accountability and and growth that comes of of being part of a church family together. See, Joshua, in, at the end of his life, the great leader, Joshua, the leader of the Israelite people, called all the people together before he died, and he gave them this final address. He said in Joshua chapter 24, verse 14 to 15, he says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. In other words, I think he's saying, Joshua is saying, stop playing around, stop messing around, and make a decision today. He says, are you in or are you out? And let's pick up again in verse 15 and keep reading through. Joshua says, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? Are you going to serve the gods of the land in which you are living? But as for me, Joshua says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And folks, that is where it starts with a personal decision that says, do you know what? I'm not going to blame anybody else. If it starts anywhere today, it starts with me. I I, I said that I was going to give you some insight into some great things that are happening, and, and, and then you'll see in just a minute why. There is a prayer movement that is beginning, which is incredibly exciting to me because we acknowledge, we acknowledge that we cannot do this apart from the presence of God, which yields the power of God, which truly brings the transformation of God, which is what we're about. And so that starts with prayer. And we know that in churches, uh, it's so common for Christians that prayer is the thing we talk about most and do the least. And so uh, we, all of our, our small groups, and it, it takes a while to begin praying in a group, and I know for some it's scary, but they're prayer-based groups. And this, just about a month or two ago, we started a Sunday morning, or I'm sorry, a Tuesday morning prayer time at 7 a.m. And we've seen that begin to grow with more people coming out Tuesday morning, 7 a.m., <laughs> Tim's cup in hand (laughs) to pray. One of the things that we've been praying, our staff, and in particular in our our prayer times around the church and on that Tuesday morning is, God, would you, this is not about Moncton Wesleyan, would you raise up a sense of unity among Christians in our city that we'd pray together and seek you together that revival would come not just to us, but to our whole city. And as a result of an amazing time, there were a group of pastors a week and a half ago. They were sitting in a room, and all of a sudden, one of them shared, do you know what we sense? 
that God is calling the pastors and Christian leaders of Moncton to, to come together in prayer. Is anybody else sensing that? And I'll, I, I'm just like chomping at the big. And as soon as they stop, start, uh, they said that we as the Baptists were wondering if other, other churches might like to come pray with us. And I couldn't wait until this, this person stopped speaking because I was like, oh, and I said, I'm so excited. I literally, I said it just like that. I'm not kidding. You can ask them. that we have known that we desperately desire to be part of this. But as the largest church in the city, we don't want people to feel like we're telling everybody else what to do. What, what to do. And so we have been praying that God would rise up some other leaders that we can come and join. <laughs> and all of a sudden, around that room of, I don't know, it was maybe like 18 people of, of Christian leaders in our city, and one by one, people started going around the room and saying, do you know what? God's been saying the same thing to me. God's been saying the same thing to me. God's been, and so last week, uh, this Tuesday, I was here at 7 a.m. for our prayer time from 7 to 8. Then on Wednesday morning, I got up and I was at Highfield Baptist from 7 till 8.30, praying with, there were about 20 20 leaders who came. And we didn't come to talk about prayer. We just started praying. <laughs> and for an hour and a half, we prayed. Tuesday morning, 7 a.m., Wednesday morning, 7 a.m. I guess what God's saying to me is uh, <laughs> less sleep, more prayer. <laughs> more Tim Hortons. <laughs> but at our Tuesday prayer time, here at the church this week, I felt like God spoke to me. I don't say that often, you know, in terms of, oh, you know, every day I, I have a word of prophecy from the Lord, not against anybody who, who does have that. It's just that every once in a while I get these specific promptings on a fairly regular basis, and I think, I wonder if that's from God. And the way that you know that is, is it affirmed and confirmed by other believers? Is it true and consistent with the word of God? And often it's, is this something you'd rather not do or acknowledge? Because that's, that's the way that God, he often touches those areas in our life. And all of a sudden it hit me like a ton of bricks, something that I've been wrestling with and concerned about for the last few weeks. And God gave me this picture. And my concern has been how many people who are trying to live what often is called the good Christian life and go to church and yet know little to nothing about what the Bible actually says. And the picture that I felt like God gave me in our prayer time on Tuesday morning here was the, the picture of people trying to build their lives on a foundation, to build a house on a foundation with a hammer and some nails and some two-by-fours and no blueprints. No plans, no architect, and then we wonder why we are struggling. God has given us the blueprints. And if you are not spending time in this book, 
you are being more shaped by the world than you are by the Word. Now, oh, Joel, you're being pretty harsh. I'm also giving you encouragement. Guess what? Learning this book is what we're about around here. Because <laughs> I'm not smart enough to figure out life on my own. I'm not. And I've looked at the world, and I know that so many people in the world are pretty confident that they have it figured out and that they've got all the answers, but I've looked beneath the surface in their life and found that that's not true more often than not. But I have seen in my life the beauty of the transformation that takes place when people make themselves pursuers of God, shaped by the word and empowered by prayer. I've seen the transformation and here's how I can tell you because I have seen it in my life. I've seen it in other lives, but people who knew me, <laughs> I actually saw somebody in the atrium who I had uh, I probably maybe had not had a five minute conversation with in the last 26 years and ran into them to the atrium right before coming into the, to the service. And a thought that crosses my mind is anybody who knew me 23 years ago, Joel is an idiot. Truth. I might still be a humble, weak man today. But I can testify to the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and the power of this word to order our lives in the difference. I am not the same person that I used to be. And you begin getting involved in a small group around here to study the Word of God together. Get involved in a, in a Bible class like the ones that we provide. Make a commitment to make this a priority to be here every week to study the Word of God together. And people will begin to see a difference in your life. And they'll begin to say, what's the difference? Like, what is going on with you? What's different about... You, what's different about your family? And you can say, look, I'm not criticizing anybody else. I'm not critiquing the world. I can't speak for the world. I can't speak for other religions. I can't speak for other families. But here's what I can tell you. We have made a decision that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's what makes the difference. And then it begins to be evidenced in the way that we spend our money, in the way that we spend our time, in the way that we invest in our families. And all of a sudden people say, you don't live the same way as everybody else. And, and you might be saying, oh, but Joel, I'm the only one in my family who's trying to follow after Christ. It's okay, listen, it's got to start somewhere and it can start with you. And some today, maybe you are grieving over children who you tried to raise in the faith of Jesus and they've walked away. And the enemy has tried to defeat you and destroy you and has tried to convince you that it is your fault. I'm here to tell you, you can do all the right things. I have seen wonderful, amazing, godly parents again and again whose children have walked away 
And I've seen horrible parents, abusive parents, whose kids turn out to be wonderful. All you can do is love them, encourage them, bless them, and pray for them. The choice is theirs. Some of you, if there's anything you could change today, it would be your husband. <laughs> oh, come Lord Jesus, help my husband. Maybe if, if you could change one thing today, it would be your wife. But of course you can't because she's perfect. At least mine is. Not by her admission, by my admission. Some of you parents, oh, you wish you could change your, or, or some of you kids, don't you wish you could change your parents? Oh man, don't you wish you could change your parents? But you can't. But here's what you can say. Today, as for me and my house, as for me, even if my house doesn't follow, I will serve the Lord.